Hey, Uncertain Hour listeners, we are back, finally, with the last episode in our regulation series. We've been working really hard on it, and we're excited to bring it to you now. And I should say, right off the bat, that this episode is not about guns or gun regulation. But to get at what this episode is about, I need to pause on this one event that got a lot of attention in the aftermath of that awful school shooting in Parkland, Florida. A story we're following this morning, the fatal shooting at a high school in southern Florida, 17 dead. After a troubled young man with a history of mental health issues bought an assault rifle and used it to murder 17 students, teachers and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. He used an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. Contessa Brewer is here with more on this story. Things unfolded, as you know, from there. It's not going to be talked like it has been in the past. It's been going on too long, too many instances. Leaders began making statements. Common themes emerged, including how we need to do better with background checks on gun sales and mental illness. That was one of the big points hit by President Trump. We're going to be very strong on background checks, very strong emphasis on the mental health of somebody. Republican lawmakers like Senator Chuck Grassley and House Speaker Paul Ryan hit that theme too. We have not done a very good job of making sure that people that have mental reasons for not being able to handle a gun, getting their name into the FBI files, and we need to concentrate on that. Mentally. Health is, a, is often a big problem underlying these tragedies. We want to make sure that if someone's in the mental health system, that they don't get a gun if they're not supposed to get a gun. We but at the same time, there were other people, including students from the school where the shooting had occurred, who started calling out this one moment that had happened almost exactly a year before the Parkland shooting that involved the president and the Republican-controlled Congress and that seemed to run counter to what those politicians were saying. Last February, President Trump signed a bill that made it easier for people with mental illnesses to buy guns. The president rolled back an Obama-era rule that made it tougher for the mentally ill to get their hands on guns. In February of 2017, one year ago, President Trump repealed an Obama-era regulation that would have made it easier to block the sale of firearms to people with certain mental illnesses. I don't need to be a psychologist to know that repealing that regulation was a really dumb idea. And to be clear, that regulation that got repealed, that all these people were talking about, it would not have applied to the Parkland shooter. But it did address the broader issue of keeping guns out of the hands of the mentally ill, something that almost 90 percent of Americans support. The regulation grew out of this law from 2007 that Congress passed and President Bush signed soon after the mass shooting at Virginia Tech, the law was meant to improve the national database for gun background checks, what's sometimes called the NICS. The law said it was illegal to sell a gun to anyone who was, quote, adjudicated as a mental defective, which is kind of weird and arcane language, right? But Congress didn't define it any more than that. And the law directed federal agencies to go through their records and send over names of anyone who fit that description. It took some time, as it often does when writing regulations, for different government agencies to come up with a system for determining exactly who counted as adjudicated as a mental defective. After research and discussion, the Social Security Administration came up with this criteria. People who get payments for a mental disability who have also been deemed unfit to manage their own finances, 
their names would get put into the background check system. There were critics, the NRA, but also the ACLU and more than a dozen disability rights groups. They said the criteria painted mental illness with too broad a brush. But many gun control groups praised the plan. And after months of considering public input, refining and weighing the pros and cons, the regulation was finalized in December of 2016, just before President Obama left office. And then, barely two months later, in the early days of the Trump administration in February of 2017. It shall be in order to consider in the House a joint resolution providing for congressional disapproval of the rules submitted by the Social Security Administration relating to implementation of the NICS Improvement Amendments Act of 2007. Before the regulation had even fully gone into effect, using this tool known as the Congressional Review Act, the regulation was wiped off the books along with the possibility for any future regulation that's, quote, substantially similar. Congress passed and President Trump signed a law permanently repealing the regulation. There were no public hearings, just 11 hours of floor debate. In both houses, the vote was largely along party lines. The ayes are 57, nays are 43. The joint resolution is passed. And zap. Out the regulation went. It's worth noting that in the first few months of 2017, the NRA and other groups that opposed the rule had spent more than $5 million on lobbyists who pushed Congress to, among other things, do away with the regulation. That's more than twice as much as gun control groups in favor of the regulation spent on their lobbyists. But, like I said, this episode is not about gun regulation. What it is about is the history of the specific tool that Congress and the president used to quickly and permanently eliminate that gun regulation I just told you about, and to quickly and permanently eliminate 14 other regulations in 2017 as well. Regulations that took months, often years, to craft and consider, aimed at things like protecting internet privacy, preventing oil and gas companies from bribing foreign governments, strengthening the reporting of workplace injuries. Disapproving the rules submitted by the Department of Labor. Disapproving the rules submitted by the Department of the Interior. Disapproving the rules submitted by the Department of Defense. The General Services of The final rules submitted by Secretary of Health and Human Services. Disapproval of the rules submitted by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Disapproval under Chapter 8 of Title V, United States Code, and so forth all wiped off the books with a simple majority vote. The fast-track deregulation tool used to do this was, like I said, called the Congressional Review Act, the CRA. It gives Congress the power to review a new regulation for a window of 60 working days after it's been put on the books, with no public hearings necessary, only limited debate. If Congress decides they want to get rid of the regulation they're reviewing, they can pretty much erase it. Veto it, you might say. All it takes is a simple majority in both houses and the president's signature, and the regulation's gone, or any future regulation that's like it. The CRA had been a pretty obscure tool until the Trump administration. Before this administration, only one time in our history had a president signed a bill that used the CRA to cancel a federal 
regulation. So we're doing a lot of them, and uh, they deserve to be done. During President Trump's first year in office, the Congressional Review Act became one of the most effective forces behind the push from the White House and Republicans in Congress to deregulate. And on this episode, I'm going to tell you some stories that help explain why this tool exists, how tools like it have been used in the past, and why they'll probably be used again. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour, where the things we fight the most about are the things we know the least about. I'm Chrissy Clark, senior correspondent with Marketplace's Wealth and Poverty team, and this is a show that digs into the deepest uncertainties of our lives to make some sense of making it in America. Who gets ahead? Who gets left behind? Who has the power to write or unwrite the rules? And who gets written off? And as you know, if you've listened to past episodes, rules are what this season of the show is all about, specifically federal regulations. These collections of fine print that shape every minute of our lives, from mundane things like frozen cherry tarts to deadly serious things like guns. And yet, for most of us, our understanding of federal regulations doesn't go much past buzzwords and talking points. And there's this one talking point that's come up a lot each time that tool, the Congressional Review Act, has been used to dismantle one of these 15 regulations I told you about between February and November of 2017. It's this idea that the CRA is needed to stop regulatory overreach from a very specific group of people. Unelected bureaucrats at federal agencies overreaching short-sighted and misguided rules by unelected bureaucrats. Just the personal opinion of a bureaucrat can abridge your Second Amendment rights. Article 1 of the Constitution is clear. We have a Constitution that grants Congress, not federal agencies, the power to write the law. And this concern that gave rise to the CRA about unelected bureaucrats on a tear making overreaching federal regulations... It's nothing new, and it has this fascinating and storied past that goes back much deeper than the recent deregulatory push by President Trump and Congress. It connects to this long constitutional struggle we've had in our country over the balance of power, over who's ultimately in charge of making the rules we have to live by. And I'm going to lay out some of that for you today to help give context for some of the deregulation going on right now. This episode's going to be kind of like one of those sets of nesting Russian dolls. There are stories within stories within stories that involve, among other things, an army of used car dealers and a man in a white suit. But our story starts very small and halfway around the world in Kenya one afternoon more than 50 years ago in the 1960s. In the middle of the 60s, yes. You can see from the bell bottoms, you know. When a young school teacher from Nairobi named Jagdish Chada Jagdish Rai Chada was hanging out with a new friend. A few old black and white pictures capture fragments from their time together. Candids. Yeah, that's us. Smiling faces in a garden in Nairobi. One of a man in a polo shirt, mid-twenties, a white guy squinting into the sun. That's Michael Davidson, yes. Another of a man in bell-bottoms, also in his 20s, an Indian guy crouching down to pet a dog. And uh, this is uh, myself. Boy, I was was not bad looking. Today, Jagdish Chada is 73. 
He's got silvery white hair and a little glint in his eye when he wants you to know he's making a joke. He's long since lost touch with Michael Davidson, the squinting polo shirt guy. But back in the 60s, when they were both young men, the conversations Jagdish and Michael had helped set in motion something that would profoundly change Jagdish's life and the course of the U.S. government. Of course, neither of them knew all that at the time. Jagdish and Michael were just new friends, hanging out over food and beer. Tesker beer. Tesker beer. The brand name is Tesker. That is Michael Davidson. He's 78 now, a few years older than Jagdish. He's got silver hair and a quiet smile. Michael and Jagdish live thousands of miles apart now. They haven't spoken to each other in decades. Still haven't. But when I talk to each of them separately... They shared a lot of the same memories. Michael is American. He'd gone to Kenya right after law school as a volunteer in the Peace Corps. And Jagdish, a local, offered to show Michael and his friends around. I was a kind of a, if I may call myself, guide. They hit it off. You know, the memory was of a truly lovely person. He was a, a gentleman, quiet type, but uh, when he spoke, the people would listen. Jagdish even had a nickname for Michael. He was known as Bwana Malimu, that wise teacher. Michael's not sure he ever heard Jagdish call him that to his face. But uh, I'll accept that. <laughs> Michael and Jagdish met through... Friend of a friend and a colleague, I believe, of Jagdish's. Through some teachers who was teaching our school. A school in Nairobi. They went to each other's homes. We broke bread many, many times together with that little beer. I have a recollection also of visiting Chagdish in Nairobi at some family location. And they talked about the kind of things that people from completely different worlds can talk about. Jagdish learned about the U.S. from Mike. Miami, California, Midwest. And he helped Mike understand Kenya. The language, the flora and fauna. And they talked about the experiences they shared that were unfolding right in front of them. At midnight, the Union Jack was lowered for the last time, and Kenya ceased to be a colony and became independent. Because the year Mike arrived in Kenya, 1964, was also... Uh, the year in which it became a republic. And Kenyans, including Jagdish, knew... Independence had come, things will change. When Jagdish was growing up in the 1940s and 50s, Kenya was still under British rule, and it was highly segregated. Segregated schools, segregated jobs. White Kenyans were in the minority, but they were on top. Black Kenyans, the Africans, were on the bottom, disenfranchised politically and economically. And then there were the brown Kenyans, like Jagdish, descended mostly from Indian immigrants who'd been brought to Kenya by the British to fill service jobs. Jagdish says his father was actually brought over as an indentured servant. The brown Kenyans were kind of caught in the middle. That stratified type of segregation was there, and it was entrenched in the system. But with independence, Kenya was changing. The old hierarchies were turning upside down. A reverse type of uh, uh, stratification was taking place. Black Kenyans, the Africans, set up a new republic that they controlled. They took power back from the British, orchestrated buyouts of the fertile farmland that had been long occupied by whites, redistributed it to poor black families. That's actually what Michael Davidson was doing in Kenya with the Peace Corps, helping the new government with... Land resettlement to acquire European farmland and resettle uh, African farmers. 
And Jagdish was sympathetic to his new friend's efforts. The land, the land belonged to the Africans. So the whole picture of the new country, it had to reflect the African themselves. But all these changes put Jagdish in a complicated position. The jobs were given to the Africans, of course, they, they had to. Brown and white faces can't be running a country and it belongs to the black people. It is the reality of life. But that meant that people of Indian descent were... They, they, they were displaced. And that meant an uncertain future for Jagdish, this young Indian schoolteacher just beginning his adult life. In the Indian community, there was a, this sense of a despair, the wave which is coming. Yeah. There's nothing you can do. And Indians realized that there was no future for them. Jagdish talked about the state of Kenya and the state of his own life over meals and Tusker beers with Michael and his other American friends. Thinking about his future and we had exchanged, you know, thoughts about his future. And Jagdish started to see a new path for himself, looking at Michael's life. He was a kind of a, an intellectual, well advanced in terms of academics. And I wasn't. I was of the opinion that I have to get an advanced degree. There weren't many options back then for higher education in Kenya, but Jagdish kept thinking about all the opportunities Michael talked about in America, the scholarships, the good universities. I'd gone to law school. He was a lawyer. And over these conversations with Michael and his other new American friends, an idea forms in Jagdish's head. I explored the possibility that I should be able to go to the United States and get higher education. These Peace Corps people, they helped me helped him figure out which schools to apply to, wrote him letters of recommendation, and eventually Jagdish heard back from a college in Ohio, Bowling Green University. He'd been accepted. He got a student visa. And then I came to the United States. Michael and Jagdish lost touch after Michael's Peace Corps tour was over. But those conversations that Jagdish had with Michael and his American friends about the opportunities he might find in the U.S., they stuck with him, kept up his hope, which he needed pretty much as soon as he got to America in 1966. Jagdish landed in New York, had to find his way to college, to Bowling Green. So he went to the bus station, boarded a Greyhound. I told them I wanted to go to Bowling Green. And they said, you know, they said, okay. I thought there was only one in Bowling Green. There was not. I ended up Bowling Green, Kentucky. 400 miles away from the Bowling Green in Ohio, where he was trying to go. Yeah, and then I had to go back. When Jagdish finally did get to college, he did well. He studied hard, made good friends, worked summers at a ketchup factory, played on the school tennis team. He was in school in Ohio for five years got a bachelor's degree in business administration, then a master's in economics and political science. After he saved up a little money, he thought he might go to law school, like his old Peace Corps friend, Mike Davidson. But as soon as Jagdish finished his master's, at the end of 1971, his plans hit a snag. The student visa that allowed him in the U.S. was about to expire. He got a letter from the U.S. Immigration Office, a reminder of his looming change of status. Sir? Let us know your timetable. Informing him that soon he would be in the U.S. Illegally. Deportable alien. But Jagdish's timetable for leaving the U.S., for going back home to Kenya, 
had run up against a problem. I could not go back. He couldn't go back to Kenya because, as Kenya established itself as a new independent country, it had set up new rules for citizenship. Only people whose parents had been born in Kenya were automatic citizens. That left out most Indian Kenyans, including Jagdish. He was born in Kenya, but his parents weren't. He tried applying for Kenyan citizenship, but the application was never answered, meaning Jagdish was not a citizen of the land where he was born. And when he approached the Kenyan government about returning to his home after grad school... They refused. They, you tried and they said no. No, I, I asked the Kenyan government. And they say... You're not a citizen of this country. You're, you're a British subject. At this point, a lot of Indian Kenyans, including some of Jagdish's family, had made use of their ties to Britain. As life got harder and harder for them in Kenya, they moved to Britain in mass exodus. And since they were subjects of a former colony, Britain accepted them. At first. But by the time Jagdish had finished grad school and tried to get permission to move to Britain himself, Britain had closed off immigration to most Indian Kenyans. And the British government would not take me in Britain. So you were kind of caught in these cross-currents of history and politics. Correct. Very correctly put, yes. Caught very badly. Kenya wouldn't take him. Britain wouldn't take him. And the U.S. was telling him he had to leave. I have no place to go. No country to accept me. In, in other words, I became a person of no land. A man without a country. A man without a country. Jagdish tried to explain all this to U.S. immigration officials. He went down to a local office, by this time he was living in California, to try to sort it out, see if there was some way he could stay. I explained everything they did not understand. What did they say? <laughs> they just, I, you know, those... Uh, khaki shirts and well-trained mustaches, you know. They threw the whole thing at me. He said, you are illegal, deportable. I cursed them, not in front of them, but I thought they were stupid, but they did not know. They thought I was making it up. Jagdish was fingerprinted and photographed. A date for a deportation hearing was set. He was told he'd probably want to get a lawyer, which he did once he found one he could afford. And the lawyer told Jagdish there might actually be hope. Because Congress had given immigration officials the power to suspend deportations of certain immigrants in certain cases to grant them permanent residence if the immigrant was found to be a person of, quote, good moral character and if the deportation would result in extreme hardship. Extreme hardship. That's Barbara Craig, professor emerita of Wesleyan University. She wrote a book about Jagdish Chada's story. And Barbara says this possible lifeline, this Hail Mary for Jagdish, traced its roots all the way back to the 1930s and 40s. 907 Jewish unfortunates without a country find at least temporary shelter... In the run-up to World War II, when people in Europe were fleeing Hitler and turning to the U.S. for refuge. Our door to get into the United States is being pounded on by an awful lot of different people in desperate shape. And those desperate people were running up against tight immigration restrictions. So individual immigrants started going one by one to Congress, the part of the government in charge of immigration policy, and pleading with them to make an exception to the law. Sometimes Congress would actually pass these individual private bills to allow a person in a desperate situation to stay. But no one thought this was a very good system. 
Congress was overwhelmed dealing with people who came to each individual member saying, you know, this is a terrible hardship. Can you help me? Can you do a private bill? And it was just taking up too much of Congress's time. And so Congress did what lots of us do when we're feeling overwhelmed. It delegated. Specifically, it handed over some of this work, looking into the details of individual cases, to immigration officials in the executive branch. They were the ones who were executing the immigration law anyway. So Congress gave them this extra bit of power to screen people who were up for deportation, to decide if they were facing a, quote, extreme hardship. And if so, to say, okay, you can stay. I should say, when it came to defining what exactly extreme hardship looked like, Congress wasn't specific. Congress at no time anywhere in the law said what that w- those two words, extreme hardship, meant. Kind of like how, decades later, Congress wouldn't say what the words adjudicated as a mental defective meant when it came to gun sales. Instead, Congress told officials in the executive branch, we leave that up to you guys. Jagdish Chada and his lawyer hoped that being a man without a country would fit the definition. In case I'm asked to leave this country, I shall face many hardships. Here's Jagdish reading from the statement he made in February 1974 to the immigration official reviewing his deportation. Both Kenya as well as Great Britain do not want me or people of my ethnic background. I have been here for seven years. I have considered this country to be my home. All my friends are in this country, and given an opportunity, I would like to contribute to the welfare of this country. After all, I owe a great deal to the American people. That's how I felt. It's my home, it's my country, and I go with whatever ups and downs it has. The immigration official at the hearing pushed back, suggested that since Jagdish's family was from India, maybe he could go back there. Jagdish told the judge he'd never been to India in his life. By the virtue of my skin, you can put me in many brown countries, you know. Anyway, India had pretty much closed its doors to Indian Kenyans, too. After Jagdish made his case, he heard nothing from the immigration officials about it for four months. And then... In June of 1974, he got a call from his lawyer who told him... You have been suspended from deportation. Suspended from deportation. How did you feel at that I feel relieved. I can stay. But... But there was a but. There was a but of the fact that that doesn't mean the case is over. It wasn't over because of this one last little bit of fine print that Congress had tucked into the law it wrote with its roots in the 1930s and 40s, that law that gave immigration officials the power to suspend deportations in cases of extreme hardship. At the same time, Congress had also written something else into the law. This little thing in it called the legislative veto. The legislative veto. Just a little tiny provision. A little tiny provision that gave Congress, a.k.a. the legislative branch, the power to veto certain things done by an executive branch or independent agency if Congress didn't like them. 
It's actually the forerunner to that tool I told you about at the beginning of this story, the Congressional Review Act, that Congress used in 2017 to overturn that gun regulation and more than a dozen others. And the basic principle of the legislative veto was that it's this sort of backseas clause that Congress carves out, like the way a kid on the playground might give another kid their cookie, but then call backseas on it. I call backseas. So they could take it back whenever they wanted. That's a very excellent analogy. It is. It is. It's I give you the power, but not quite. I can take it back anytime I want to. Not that we're comparing the very serious constitutional powers of Congress and the executive branch to kids on a playground arguing over a cookie. But you get the principle, right? In the case of this legislative veto that Congress tucked into that immigration law in the run-up to World War II, what it did specifically was give Congress the power to veto, to call backsies, on an immigration official's decision to grant permanent residence to someone who faced extreme hardship. Congress reserved the right for a set window of time to review a case like Jagdish Chada's, where a deportation had been suspended. And Congress could say, actually, never mind. For any reason at all or no reason at all. Without any public debate, without checking back in with the immigration officials who'd reviewed the case in the first place, Congress could just say, we think this immigrant should be deported. And zap, out you go. For a year and a half, Jagdish waited, wondering if Congress would use the legislative veto on him. I kept on asking, what happened, what happened, what happened? There was no answer. Until one December night in 1975, a year and a half after immigration officials in the executive branch had decided Jagdish Chada should be allowed to stay in the U.S. because after careful review, they believed deportation would cause him extreme hardship. Congress decided to reconsider his case and five others. There was no hearing, no public debate, and no evidence that anyone in Congress had even looked at the record of any of these people. But four days after it was introduced into Congress, a resolution was passed. Resolved that the House of Representatives does not approve the granting of permanent residence in the United States to the aliens herein after named. And then it lists these people. The second name on the list? Jagdish Rai Chada. Congress said that, that I am a deportable individual. They gave no explanation. And Jagdish was back where he started, a citizen of nowhere, ordered once again to be deported from the U.S., the only home he had left. When he heard what Congress had done... I felt that it was not right. How come they have come to this decision? It took me days and many visits to the library to just to understand. I did not understand that. This guy had a master's degree in political science. He knew enough about American government to know that something about this seemed weird. I thought that the Constitution, the framers, if they were alive, they would say, no, this is wrong. Here, Congress had told immigration officials and the executive branch to go through all this time and effort to understand Jagdish's situation, to determine whether it was extreme hardship or not. And then, just like that, Congress had said, never mind. Jagdish asked Congress to reconsider. They didn't. Then he went back to immigration officials and appealed to them. They heard his concerns, but said their hands were tied. Congress had the final word. 
And one day, when he came home to his apartment, his neighbors told him some official-looking guys in uniform had come by. The G-men, they called them. The G-men. That expression I heard from them. G-men came looking for you. Government officials. Immigration officers. On March 9th, 1977, he was notified that in 20 days, he should be ready to report to a U.S. immigration office at 9 a.m., that he could bring 44 pounds of luggage, and that he'd be flown to Kenya at the American government's expense. Jagdish had no idea what would happen once he got to Kenya, since he had no legal status there anymore. What would they do to me? Would they put me in the prison or put me in a shelter? But then, life took another turn for Jagdish Chada, thanks to, in a roundabout way, a man partial to wearing white suits. That's coming up after the break. You've heard me say that The Uncertain Hour is produced by Marketplace, but something you might not have heard is that we're a nonprofit news organization. Our funding comes in part directly from listeners like you who believe that the stories we tell and how we tell them are important. Thank you so much to everyone who has already donated this season. Every bit helps to make this kind of reporting possible. Visit uncertainhour.org if you'd like to know more. So we will get back, I promise, to what happened to Jagdish Chada, the man without a country, after he got notice he was going to be deported in 20 days. But first, we're going to leave his story for a bit, because I need to tell you this other story that was, in an indirect way, crucial to Jagdish's fate. And it starts with this guy. My name is Elliot Levitas. I was a member of Congress from 1974 until 1984, basically. Elliot Levitas represented a district in Georgia, part of Atlanta and its suburbs. He was a Democrat and a bit of a character. There's this one picture of him from the 70s. It's in a room full of serious-looking politicians wearing formal dark suits. And then there's Elliot smoking a white pipe out of the side of his mouth and wearing... I was wearing a white suit, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yes, I've heard that you wore a white suit a lot. Is that, is yes, that right? that's true. <laughs> that is true. The thing that connects Elliot Levitas's story to Jagdish Chada's story is a thing that, once upon a time, made Elliot sort of famous, at least inside the Beltway famous, aside from the white suits. And this thing actually earned Elliot a nickname, perhaps one of the least catchy nicknames of all time. You earned the nickname at one point, Mr. Legislative Veto. Is that right? I've heard that. I've heard, I've heard. I didn't name myself, but I've heard that reference. So you remember the legislative veto, right? That thing that threw a monkey wrench into Jagdish Chada's hopes of staying in America? That little tiny provision, that Baxi's clause in fine print that said, yes, we, Congress, grant immigration officials the power to decide someone facing extreme hardship shouldn't be deported, but also that we might veto that decision if we don't like it. For many years, that particular legislative veto tucked into immigration law, it was one of the only ones around. It was this kind of obscure provision attached to only a few dozen statutes. 
until the 1970s, around the time when Mr. Legislative Veto came to Washington and got interested in the tool. I think it's fair to say that I picked it up and ran with it. Ran with it for a reason that had nothing to do with immigration or Jagdish Chada. Well, the reason is when I came to Congress, I had concerns about the way we regulated our economy and our society. Which brings us back to our favorite issue, federal regulations. Let me explain. When Elliot Levitas got elected to Congress in 1974, he stepped into one of those moments in history, kind of like today, where the debate about federal regulations in our country seemed to be coming to this boiling point. That's because in the years right before Elliot came to Congress, this had happened. In the 60s and early 70s, people flooded the streets voicing their concerns about the problems they saw in society. Racism. We are here and we are standing before the forces of power. Environmental destruction. We are systematically destroying our land, our streams, and our seas. Sexism. Equal rights. Equal rights to have a job, to have respect. Meanwhile, in Congress, politicians tried to respond. They passed laws meant to address those problems. Lots of laws. An explosion of laws. It begins with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That's Barbara Craig again, Wesleyan Professor Emeritus. I'm just going to rapidly read what happens. 1965, we get the Voting Rights Act, National Emissions Standards, Solid Waste Disposal. 1966, the National Traffic and Motor Vehicle Safety Act. 1967, Air Quality Act. 1969, the National Environmental Policy Act. Coal Mine Safety Act. 70, we create the Environmental Protection Agency. Major rewrite of the Clean Air Act. The Federal Water Pollution Control Consumer Product Safety Commission. Safe Drinking Water The Endangered Species Act. That's a lot of huge legislation. Yeah, you need to take a big big breath after that. <laughs> Barbara says all these laws had energized America. So there's this sense of can-do in the society as a whole. But all that can-do was followed by how exactly do we do it? Many of these laws said things like, go make the water clean, do it by this date, and, and get it to this level of cleanliness by this date, but not how. Instead, Congress delegated the how to people with technical expertise, civil servants in executive agencies and independent commissions, the EPA, OSHA, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Congress told these experts to write regulations that filled in the details about what exactly it would take to meet Congress's goals for safe and fair workplaces, clean water and air. And once those regulations started getting made... All of a sudden, it was clear who was going to pay, who was going to be disadvantaged. Oh, yeah, clean air, but it's going to be that factory in my district that's going to have to spend millions of dollars to redo the way it makes its product in order to meet these goals. I don't like that regulation. I need a way to stop it. And that's where Mr. Legislative Veto, Elliot Levitas, the white-suited lawmaker from Georgia, came in. He says he had lots of constituents making complaints about the growing number of regulations. Concerns where regulations became so burdensome that the small business person especially was not able to function economically. And these regulations, they had the force of law. In some cases, if you disobeyed one, you could go to prison. In Elliot's opinion, this wasn't just a burden for his constituents. It bordered on unconstitutional. It's not an accident that Article I of the Constitution 
gives legislative power to the Congress. That's the first thing the framers did. And they wanted to make the people's representatives the ones who make laws. That point, as you might have noticed, sounds a lot like the point many lawmakers made recently when they overturned all those Obama-era regulations with the Congressional Review Act. Article 1 of the Constitution is clear. We have a Constitution that grants Congress, not federal agencies, the power to write the law. The way that Elliot saw it, and that 40 years later some lawmakers still do, Congress is constantly at risk of losing its lawmaking power to this ever-growing fourth branch of government, made up of expanding federal bureaucracies, churning out regulations, and run by... Unelected officials. And I don't disparage the unelected officials, by the way. They have a very important role to play. They have the expertise. On the other hand, these people are not accountable to the public. To Elliot's eyes, Congress needed an easy way to keep these unelected regulators in check. And he thought he had the perfect tool for the job. You guessed it. The legislative veto. The Baxi's Clause that was in that immigration law that affected Jagdish Chada. Elliot's idea, his innovation, was to expand the legislative veto to tuck one of these little provisions into every law that Congress wrote that delegated power to a regulatory agency so that if bureaucrats came up with a regulation that the public or Congress didn't like, Congress had the right to say, no, that's not what we had in mind. And then out that regulation would go. Just like that. Now, to be clear, Congress has always had the power to make a regulation go away without the legislative veto. Lawmakers can go through the normal process of passing a law to repeal any regulation they want. But the legislative veto gave them this shortcut, this way to skip over the normal, deliberative lawmaking process. You didn't even need the president's signature. In Elliot's push to make the legislative veto universal, he brought a flair for the dramatic. At one speech, he hauled in this huge stack of paper containing all the regulations that government agencies had produced in a recent year, and he stood in front of it. It must have been 12 or more feet high. As I extended my hand upwards, the regulatory stack was still about three or four feet above my hand. This has, by the way, become a common stunt since Elliot's time, used by politicians across the political spectrum. I want you to take a look at that uh, stack of paper behind me. Mitch McConnell has stood in front of paper stacks. What you're seeing is 20,000 pages of rules and regulations. So is President Trump. Every unnecessary page in these stacks represents hidden tax and harmful burdens to American workers and to American businesses. But Elliot Levitas is pretty sure he invented the stack of paper trope and that he's the only one who's used it while wearing a white suit. Elliot's idea to include a legislative veto, a Baxi's clause in every law that delegated an executive branch or independent agency to write regulations, it started to get traction. More and more lawmakers were starting to see regulations and the executive branch that often made them as a threat. The general mood in the country at the time only fueled this feeling. 
Executive overreach of all sorts was on America's mind. Now returning to Saigon. In the wake of the endless conflict in Vietnam that a series of presidents had gotten us into without congressional approval. Meanwhile, in this jungle war, the United States is becoming more fully involved with each In the wake of Nixon and Watergate. Announced the investigation into whether there are grounds to impeach President Nixon. So the idea of a tool that allowed Congress to put this extra check on the powers of the executive branch, it was a pretty easy sell. By the end of the 70s, Congress had managed to tuck legislative veto provisions, Baxi's clauses, into almost 200 different laws. The laws that delegated federal agencies to regulate political campaigns, to regulate electricity and gas prices, to regulate education to regulate the safety of cars, and on and on and on. The way Elliot saw it, all these legislative vetoes were a sort of emergency break that Congress could pull on the powers it delegated to federal agencies. We, the elected representatives, need to have some mechanism to have final say-so. And you can see his logic, right? If you're an elected lawmaker like Elliot, you're like, the Constitution gave us the power to make the laws of the land. And you federal agencies, we appreciate you taking on the detail work when we ask you to, to figuring out the technicalities of how to clean the air or screen immigrants or define what it means to be adjudicated as a mental defective. But we want to be able to check your work and throw it out quickly and easily if we want to. On the other hand, If you're one of these federal agencies that Congress has delegated the work to, you're like, wait a minute, we're only writing these regulations because you asked us to. We've set up a system where we document all the pros and cons we weigh, all the public input we get, and show the logic behind our decisions. We're doing our best. And if you keep second-guessing us, we can't do our job. And there was this one other concern that started coming up with the legislative veto. And it's probably best told through the story of these guys. I can put you in a really nice used car or used truck for just $25 down. That's all it takes. You don't believe it? Listen to me. I don't lie. Test drive any newer used car. And used car salesman. That's Professor Barbara Craig again. She says back when Elliot was in Congress in the 70s and early 80s, like today, used car dealers had a bit of a reputation problem. Lots of customers complaining they'd been lied to about the condition of the cars they'd bought. And in 1981, officials at the Federal Trade Commission tried to do something about it. The FTC had been given the power by Congress to make regulations to ensure fairness in trade. With that in mind, the FTC wrote this regulation saying that used car dealers had to start disclosing to customers any major known defects in the cars they sold. The regulation made a big splash in the news. The FTC proposal at issue is the result of a five-year investigation, which FTC commissioners took to the airwaves to explain their plan. We're only saying don't misrepresent. If you know, tell the consumer. The regulation had its critics, mainly, no surprise, the used car industry. Dealers said it would require too much paperwork, open them up to lawsuits. It increases the cost of the car to the dealer and therefore to the consumer. But then another group started lining up against the regulation, too. A chorus of lawmakers, both Republicans and Democrats. With over 300 pages of federal regulations. Including Elliot Levitas. It was extremely burdensome, unnecessary. But the way Elliot and other lawmakers at the time described their concerns about the used car regulation, it was interesting. 
They said, in principle, they were all for the FTC's mission of protecting consumers. It's just that when bureaucrats wrote this regulation... They had gone too far and were doing things that placed burdens on the people who were in the industry and thereby raised the cost to a consumer. It's a typical Washington bureaucratic approach. Soon enough, more than 200 lawmakers had signed on to a resolution calling for overturning the used car regulation. Uh, this put so much additional paperwork on. And the tool they used was, you guessed it, a legislative veto. Elliott had gotten a veto provision inserted into the law that reauthorized the FTC the year before. But it turned out there was one thing almost all the lawmakers behind the effort to veto the used car regulation had in common. Collectively, they had received hundreds of thousands of dollars in campaign contributions from the used car salespeople. It was their lobbyists who descended on Congress and said, we can't have this rule. That's Barbara Craig again. When the used car industry discovered this candy-dandy little legislative veto process, they went to Congress and they got this vetoed by Congress. According to an investigation of public records at the time, car dealers had spent more than $570,000 in donations over the past decade to members of Congress who were behind the effort to veto the used car regulation. Sprinkling 10000 here, 15000 there, 5000 here. The lawmakers who got donations were three times as likely to support the veto compared to those who didn't. It's not exactly buying votes, though it looks a whole lot like it. Lawmakers gave the car dealers what they wanted. They successfully vetoed the regulation. And that, Barbara Craig says, is exactly what can make a fast-track deregulation tool like the legislative veto so dangerous to democracy. It opened the back door for influence from powerful, well-financed interests. It was so obvious that this was a veto made to service the big powers, the big companies that sold used cars, and not to protect the general interest of the general public, the millions who buy the cars. Ann Barber says a fast-track deregulation tool like the legislative veto allowed lawmakers to talk out of both sides of their mouths. You could be for all the good and glittering and wonderful goals of making everything safe and clean and being on the side of of the little guy. But anything that cost an industry or a company or angered a particularly powerful interest group, you could veto. That's not to say that powerful interest groups don't also try to pressure federal bureaucrats. But Barbara says federal agencies have to follow a strict legal process when they write a regulation. They have to notify the public, document input, record any meetings they have with industry or advocacy groups, explain their rationale, show their work. And because the regulatory process takes time, average citizens have the chance to organize and register their opinions, too. Versus when Congress uses a fast-track tool like the legislative veto, Congress can just nix a regulation without any rationale and little chance for input from anyone except groups that already have well-oiled lobbying machines. And in some ways, Barbara says being an elected official can make you more prone to pressure from special interests than if you're a career civil servant. Because if you're elected, you probably want to get re-elected. So the question is, are we better off if big interests can buy congressional votes by contributing to their causes or lobbying them, or better off if we have faceless, unelected bureaucrats following 
prescribed process for making rules. I took this all back to Elliot Levitas, Mr. Legislative Veto. I should say he told us he couldn't remember whether he had ever accepted campaign contributions from any car dealers himself. But I asked him more generally if he could see the argument that federal agencies might be better insulated from the influence of wealthy interests than elected officials. Well, both in Congress and in these agencies, politics is there and it's impossible to take politics out of politics. The saga over the used car regulation and its undoing became a kind of public reckoning on the legislative veto. Some consumer groups decided to challenge what had happened to the regulation, to take the legislative veto to court. And one of the lawyers representing the consumer groups was this guy. Hello. Alan Morrison. You got me. Hi, it's Chrissy with Marketplace. How are you? Tell me again, what, what, what's the story going to be about? And of course, up until now, this story has been about two main things. It's been about the white-suited Mr. Legislative Veto and his concerns about regulations like the used car rule, written by unelected bureaucrats. And it's been about Jagdish Chada. Remember him, the man without a country who was about to get deported to Kenya, and his quest to stay in the U.S. But here is where those two stories run headlong into each other. I'll tell you how after the break. Okay, so if you're a fan of The Uncertain Hour, you've heard me say that the show is produced by Marketplace. And there are some other great podcasts Marketplace makes as well. Visit marketplace.org slash podcasts. There you'll find our daily and weekly shows covering business, economics, and tech. And there's this podcast that's really worth listening to called Make Me Smart, which is starting its second season. Kai Rizdahl and Molly Wood are back with a weekly dive into the big issues behind the news. Subscribe to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. So that guy, Alan Morrison, who you heard just before the break, he was one of the lawyers challenging the legislative veto, that fast-track deregulation tool that Congress used to undo the used car regulation made by officials at the Federal Trade Commission. And around the same time, Allen was also challenging another legislative veto used to quickly undo the work of a different set of federal officials, the immigration officials who decided Jagdish Chada, the man without a country, could stay in the U.S. Yes, I was the lawyer for Mr. Chada. Which was a little bizarre because Allen was not an immigration lawyer. His specialty was public interest law. He worked for Public Citizen, the consumer watchdog group founded by Ralph Nader. But during the 1970s, Allen watched this sudden explosion of legislative vetoes being used in Congress, and it worried him. Public Citizen had been one of the leading forces pushing Congress and, in turn, government regulators to fix some of the most pressing problems facing the environment and consumers. The whole reason for giving these decisions to agencies to begin with was that the American people and the Congress have recognized that there is a problem that the marketplace won't solve and that Congress couldn't spend the time to get the answer right. And so they delegated the authority to the federal agencies to deal with that problem. But Allen says now, with the legislative veto, if Congress got enough pressure from powerful enough forces, when it came to the actual regulations meant to fix those problems, lawmakers could just say, Never mind. We don't like that. Stop. 
Looking at the legislative veto and how it worked, Allen came to a conclusion that kind of confirmed Jagdish Chada's hunch when he first learned about it through his immigration case. Allen was of the opinion that the legislative veto... Not only was it terrible public policy, but that it also raised very serious constitutional questions. Including one of the most basic constitutional questions of all. You know, the kind of stuff... That you learned about in the fifth grade. Namely, what kind of power each branch of government is supposed to have and how those powers are checked and balanced. According to the Constitution, of course, Congress... Congress makes the law. ...which it needs the president to sign, and the executive branch, with all its federal agencies... The executive carries out the law. ...implements it. But to Allen's eyes, when Congress used the legislative veto without a president's signature to dismantle work it had already written laws directing officials in the executive branch to do... Congress was crossing a constitutional line. Congress created this extra constitutional means of involving itself in the implementation of the law, and it's not authorized. Allen started looking for cases where he could use this argument to test the constitutionality of the legislative veto. He found a few, including that one about the used car regulation. But there was this other case he'd heard about through a legal conference that seemed even more promising. It was a case where the legislative veto had made a direct and crippling impact not on a faceless regulation, but on the life of one man, Jagdish Chada. What did I do? I asked my colleague who was working with me on the case. I said, get hold of Mr. Chada's lawyer and make him an offer they can't refuse. We'll take the case for nothing, litigate it on Mr. Chada's behalf. And so that's how we got to Mr. Chada. And I was being deported that week. Jagdish remembers the day he got the call, saying Allen wanted to represent him. At that point, his fight to stay in the U.S. had been going on for almost four years, and it wasn't clear whether the immigration lawyer who was helping Jagdish was going to have any more time to give to the case. Jagdish was afraid he'd run out of options. He understood that Allen's interest in the case wasn't so much about his personal immigration dilemma, but that was okay. This is now beyond me. I'm a footnote. It's now the different battle altogether. I am one of the little, 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 little instruments to keep the Constitution alive and vibrant. The Constitution of the United States is being challenged to me. Let it be. Once Allen took up Jagdish's case, it was tied up in the courts for another four years. And through all the time that Jagdish's immigration status was being decided... I was in limbo, you know. Imagine dangling with a thin rope or a thread. He was allowed to stay in the country while his immigration case got settled, but he couldn't get a work permit, so he had to work under the table. Lots of odd jobs, including working at a store that sold stereo equipment in San Francisco as a stock boy. Rolling the things which you buy. With a master's degree. With a master's degree. And uh, I worked there, having crushed my own ego as a stock person, for a year and a half, just to survive. I was bitter and everything, but I had to swallow that pride. I had to feed myself. During these years, Jagdish's mother died. She'd moved to England during Kenya's mass exodus of Indians. But because of Jagdish's man-without-a-country legal limbo, Jagdish couldn't leave the U.S. to go to her funeral. It was devastating, So that is the sad part in my life. 
Jagdish says sometimes he'd think back on that decision he'd made so many years before over Tusker beers with his old Peace Corps friends, his decision to come to America to pursue an education. In fact, I regretted that I came. I cried also in my own way, and and really with tears and everything. And then, finally, on a winter day in 1982, Jagdish woke up in a hotel room in Washington, D.C., where he'd flown from his home in California. He put on a suit and a striped tie. And this man, who'd once dreamed of becoming a lawyer, like his old friend from the Peace Corps in Kenya, Mike Davidson, he walked up the steps of the Supreme Court to hear a case get argued about his own life. I went inside a small chamber with the big, huge seats where these nine judges are sitting and they were rocking. He looked around the room at the judges rocking in their chairs, at the lawyers on each side preparing to make their arguments. And then he saw something that made him freeze. I said, my God, look at this. It was a face he hadn't seen in almost 20 years. I said, oh, there, I know him. And did you, as soon as you saw him, did you recognize him? Of course. At the same time, that face Jagdish was looking at was looking at him. Oh, my God. (laughs) I I just, I was just struck. (laughs) It was Michael Davidson. Jagdish's old friend, the Peace Corps volunteer in Kenya, who'd helped encourage Jagdish to come to America over beers. And suddenly the world shrank so small, it became a little Kenya. But it quickly became clear to Jagdish that the reason Mike was there in the Supreme Court chambers that day was because he was about to make an argument on behalf of the U.S. Congress. It turned out Mike was now the legal counsel for the U.S. Senate, and one of the main lawyers working to defend Congress's right to use the legislative veto. And in the course of that defense, Mike would be trying to persuade the Supreme Court that Congress had the right to deport his old friend, Jagdish Chada. Until that moment, Mike hadn't actually realized his old friend was part of the case. Somehow working only on the paper record that we had, I had not associated the person whose case we were beginning to work on with the person that I knew in Kenya. But as soon as he saw Jagdish? I knew exactly. You could imagine what I must have felt like. And continuing on and saying, okay, now I've got a job to do, which is to, you know, to make an argument. It's not a personal argument in the court. It's about uh, the structure of the United States government. Meanwhile, Jagdish was reeling through his own thoughts. What what went through your mind when you recognized so, him? How dare he, you know, we used to hang around together and drink and this and that. But then I gradually realized that he's employed by the Senate, you know, he was working. And then, before either of them could really say anything to the other... The hearing was about to start. I looked at him and he looked at me bewaved. We'll hear uh, <clears throat> arguments next in uh, Immigration and Naturalization Service against Chaga. Jagdish listened to the arguments made by his old friend, Mike Davidson. Chief Justice Berger, and may it please the court. Between 1934 and 1940, the Congress and the executive were at an impasse 
over the question of relief from deportation. He listened to the arguments made by his own lawyer. It's important not to lose sight of the fact that legislative vetoes in general, and this one in particular, affect the lives of many people subject to the law. But honestly, it was all kind of a blur for Jagdish, especially after what had just happened, running into his old friend. I will remember the fact that they mentioned time to time my name. We have problems about the standing of Mr. Chada. The kind of detriment, actual detriment, that Mr. Chada faces. The decision below is affirmed. Mr. Chada will be a citizen immediately. Other than that, it was hard to follow all the legalese, even with a degree in political science. I will be very honest. This was all like Greek or Sanskrit. There were sentences by which you'll understand a little bit, but majority of it was a language of its own. Or state the case for the constitutionality of these provisions. And there's one more moment that stands out for Jagdish from that day at the Supreme Court. At one point, some law students who'd been watching in the gallery came up to him. And they said, that's Mr. Charat. They got up and cheered me. <laughs> they said, you're so great. You're making the history of the United States. And that was my moment of glory a little bit there, too. The day after the Supreme Court hearing, Jagdish wanted to make sure his old friend knew there were no hard feelings between them. He understood Mike was just doing his job. He was obligated to defend this tool, the legislative veto, that his bosses in Congress saw as so valuable. So Jagdish went to see Mike. Came down to my office in the afternoon, brought a bottle of champagne for my staff. <laughs> I bought him champagne. I said, drink, you, you know. Just to celebrate, you know. Actually, this was a landmark case. That's, a, But actually, in the actual sense that I have met you again. You drink this. Let's drink. Did you toast? I said, to you. And he says, to you. I hope you win. I don't want to. I said, it doesn't matter. We joked, you know. And then Mike gave his old friend a tour of the Capitol. Took him into the chambers of Congress. The same place where lawmakers had used the legislative veto against him. Where were you sitting when you got the call? Yeah. The, this phone? Yeah, yeah. More than a year after the Supreme Court first heard his case, Jagdish was at his home in a suburb of San Francisco when his lawyer, Alan Morrison, called him. It was June 23, 1983. He said, Chara, Jagdish, I said, yes. Congratulations, we won. For Jagdish, winning meant that after 10 years of being a man without a country, stuck in immigration limbo, his status in the eyes of the law was finally resolved. Did you feel differently after you hung up the phone and had been told you yeah. won the case? Yeah. It, it didn't I, feel I'm like... a legal person, in a way. And as a legal person, he could finally work legally, become a citizen, vote. Jagdish was happy, but he'd sacrificed a lot to get to this moment. He was in his late 30s by then and was only just now able to get a real above-the-board job to use the master's degree he'd earned. Though being middle-aged and with no official work experience, that wasn't easy. After the decision, Jagdish also felt proud. He felt that with his case... I have strengthened the, the Constitution of the United States. Though it was hard to explain to his friends exactly how. I have tried that before. Their span of uh, attention is not more than three to five minutes. And they tune out. And, and many times they say, oh, Chara, I don't understand. I'm glad you're here. That's it. 
To this day, he still lives in California, in the Bay Area, close to his five children and four grandchildren, with one more on the way. He's never been back to Kenya since he left in 1966 to come to the U.S. for school. So that's what happened to Jagdish Chada. As for the tool that almost got him deported, the legislative veto, here's what happened to that. The Supreme Court agreed with Alan Morrison, Jagdish's lawyer, that the legislative veto violated the separation of powers laid out in the Constitution. The ruling was seven to two. The justices pointed to the fact that if Congress wants to pass or amend a law, it needs to get the president's signature. And that once Congress writes a law that delegates power to the executive branch to suspend deportations or write a regulation, if Congress wants to take that power back, call backsies on it, that effectively amends the law. So that needs a president's signature, too. And because the legislative veto did not require the president's signature, it short-circuited the balance of powers between Congress and executive branch or independent agencies— It was unconstitutional. And not just the veto that affected Jagdish Chada. The Supreme Court ruled that every single legislative veto provision, every single Baxi's clause that had been tucked into a law, was unconstitutional. Meaning the veto used to strike down that used car regulation, that was unconstitutional. The vetoes tucked into laws that delegated power to bureaucracies to regulate elections, natural gas prices, education— Those vetoes were unconstitutional, too. With this one ruling in Jagdish Chada's case, the Supreme Court overturned more than 200 legislative veto provisions tucked into federal laws. That meant more parts of federal law were overturned in that single decision than had ever been overturned in the history of the Supreme Court. Consumer advocates and environmental groups cheered. So, by the way, did constitutional literalists, including Antonin Scalia. But for those who thought federal regulatory agencies needed more accountability, like Elliot Levitas, Mr. Legislative Veto, the Supreme Court's decision was perched at the top of a slippery slope. It did invite and encourage the bureaucracy to take a more assertive role and create a more administrative state. Still, even though the legislative veto was deemed unconstitutional in 1983, that did not put an end to this constitutional struggle between Congress and federal agencies over who should have the ultimate power to write or unwrite our country's rules. For all the reasons we've talked about already in this episode, a lot of lawmakers still wanted a tool to quickly and easily undo regulations made by those unelected bureaucrats, as they called them. And in 1996, a dozen years after the Supreme Court ruled the legislative veto unconstitutional, Congress found a new tool. And so that's how we came up with the Congressional Review Act. The Congressional Review Act, the CRA. That thing I told you about at the beginning of the story that Congress and President Trump used in 2017 to eliminate that gun regulation and more than a dozen others. Don Nichols was one of the lawmakers who spearheaded the CRA. He was a Republican senator from Oklahoma from 1981 to 2004. And in 1996, along with Democratic Senator Harry Reid from Nevada, he sponsored the CRA. 
and the reasons Don Nichols gives for why he created the CRA back then, they'll sound familiar, perhaps remind you of a certain man in a white suit. The Constitution is very clear. If you're going to pass a law, it needs to pass by Congress. Congress is elected by the people, and if people don't like the laws that Congress passes, they can change Congress. But what was happening, you had regulatory agencies, unelected bureaucrats that were passing very expensive, very controversial laws by regulation. And and I was offended by that. And so I said, we should have an expedited procedure to where we could review and maybe possibly overturn those if the elected officials disagree with it. And, And so that was basically the genesis of the Congressional Review Act. At its core, the Congressional Review Act, the CRA, is almost identical to the legislative veto. It gives Congress a limited window of time, in the case of the CRA, 60 working days, to eliminate a regulation in a fast-track process. But there are also a couple of big differences. For one, the CRA is more permanent than the legislative veto. Once a regulation is struck down with the CRA, a federal agency isn't allowed to issue a future rule that's substantially similar ever again. Some have described this as salting the earth. The second difference is that, unlike the legislative veto, with the CRA, Congress can only kill a regulation if it gets the president's approval, which is a big part of why the CRA had, until 2017, only been used once before. Because it requires a president's signature, it's not really a useful tool, except for these certain moments in history— when a president who's more pro-regulation, like Obama, is followed by a president with a strong deregulatory bent, like Trump, and whose party controls both houses of Congress. Which, of course, brings us to today. Providing for congressional disapproval of the final rule submitted by Secretary of Health and Human Services. And in fact, as soon as President Trump was elected, people started thinking about how they could use the CRA. Specifically, industries and interest groups that were unhappy with regulations that had been finalized in the last few months of the Obama administration, they started thinking about which regulations they could get lawmakers to target with the CRA. And many of them looked for help from Don Nichols, this former senator from Oklahoma who helped create the CRA. Today, he's the head of a powerful lobbying firm in D.C., Give me an estimate of, like, how many calls did you get about the CRA in those from November to through February? We talked to quite a few people, mostly people trying to get up to speed. What what does this mean? What can it do? What what are the possibilities? And there was lots of opportunities, probably hundreds of regulations. So it was really a question which to go after. It's like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Where, where, where do you start? In the first half of 2017, Don Nichols' firm was paid $60,000 by ExxonMobil to push Congress to use the CRA to erase a regulation aimed at preventing oil and gas companies from bribing foreign governments. His firm was also paid $108,000 by AT&T and Comcast to push Congress to use the CRA to erase a regulation that would have required broadband companies to ask before they sold your web browsing history. There's been a lot of talk recently about lobbyist influence in Washington, and some Americans might find it troubling that you were being paid by some of the world's biggest companies to lobby Congress on their behalf to use a law that you yourself had actually sponsored 20 years ago. So what do you say to that concern? Well, people have a right to petition government. People have a right to 
say, government, we think you're doing something wrong, or this is not a good regulation. People have to make their case. They have to be able to sell the Congress to pass it or defeat it. Whether you agree with it or disagree with it, that's something that Congress should deal with. Congress should be involved in that instead of having unelected bureaucrats. Unelected bureaucrats have become something of a four-letter word over the last few decades for Don Nichols and others in America. And of course, elected officials should have the final say on the big decisions facing our country. But at some point, someone's got to do the painstaking, slow, and unglamorous work of figuring out the details of how our lofty policy goals are actually put into practice in our day-to-day lives. What exactly does extreme hardship look like in the case of one immigrant's life? How exactly should we ensure used car dealers are honest with their customers? Who exactly should qualify as adjudicated as a mental defective and not be allowed to buy a gun? Those are the questions where the rubber meets the road. And often our elected officials don't have specific answers for them. Which means this struggle over federal regulations, this struggle that's not always between Republicans and Democrats, but between Congress, democratically elected, but some would say uninformed, distractible, and easily swayed by powerful interests at their worst, versus regulatory agencies full of technical expertise, but some would say unaccountable at their worst. That struggle is only going to continue. That's it for this episode and this season of The Uncertain Hour. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to be hard at work on the next season for a while, and we'll be back as soon as we can with more stories about the things we fight a lot about but know just a little about. Oh, and after the credits, we have a little something special for you, so be sure to listen. This episode of The Uncertain Hour was reported by me and produced by Caitlin Esch, Maria Hollenhorst, Lyra Smith, and Tony Wagner. Engineering by Jake Gorski. The episode was edited by senior editor Nancy Fergali. Satara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. Special thanks this week to Cameron Camp and Stephen Cobb, to Barbara Hinkson Craig, whose book, Chada, The Story of an Epic Constitutional Struggle, was a huge resource for us. And special thanks to all the folks we talked to over the course of this season. You profoundly helped inform our work. Please let us know what you think of our show. Our Twitter account is at UncertainHour. And if you like what you hear, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us continue the work we do. Yeah. Is this Jagdish? Huh? This is Chrissy Clark. Hi, Chrissy. How are you? I've been very well. I have a surprise for you. Um, somebody else oh. who is on the phone right now. Oh, okay. Jagdish, this is Mike Davidson. How are you? Hey. Hey, Mike. How are you? Isn't it, isn't it wonderful that Marketplace can find people and get them back together again? Yeah, I know. She brought me back about 50 years back, you know? Remember how we were? In there, when you were in Peace Corps running around? <laughs> it was yeah. sort of just yesterday, yeah. I know. <laughs> You're the oldest link now I have, except my brothers, to to whom I can connect about Kenya, you know that? Well, it's very, very important. That was a very important part of...